Well, amen. I had a friend of mine back at Coal Falls College that was trying to really analyze why some of the uh, young people there were very committed to the Lord and others maybe were not, didn't know why they were there. And he just said that I believe it's that those who are really following the Lord have found the reality of Christ in their life. And what he was really trying to say is they've had a defining moment. In fact, I've heard it said by many people that the best way to defend against temptation, the best way to uh, uh, defend against false doctrine in your life, false philosophy in your life, going the wrong direction, is to have an encounter with Christ, a real encounter where you begin a relationship with Christ. However, that being said, all defining moments are not about salvation. That can happen. It can happen to the Christian as well and should. I've had many defining moments in my life. I share with you the fact that when uh, I was going to the University of Georgia, sitting down the floor of Memorial Hall and listening to someone talk about the Spirit-filled life, I'd been reading through the book of Matthew. I'd finished that. And now God had really um, softened my heart to the real message of the cross and the real message of the Spirit-filled life. And it was a defining moment in my life. I never looked back. I've talked to you before about the time that I hurt my ankle really bad playing basketball and the swelling went up to my knee. In fact, so bad I had to have it elevated for about three weeks. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to graduate from college because of the missed time of classes. And then to top it all off, I'd been an interim pastor of a church for almost six months and now they were winding down. They were finding a pastor and I wasn't even there. So I remember the time when I was uh, finally had to go back to my parents' house because nobody could really take care of me. I was a burden to my friends uh, at the school in the dormitory. So I went home for a couple of weeks until I could at least get a walking cast. And I remember that the uh, chairman of the search committee at the Webbs Creek Baptist Church calling me and said, hey, we found a pastor and we want you to come back one more time because, boy, we really appreciated what you did and we love you. And they did. They showed up for my graduation. Many of them did. But I, we love you. We want to say a goodbye to you. So would you come down? We're going to have a dinner on the grounds. Would you do that? And I just couldn't wait for him to finish because I was going to tell him no. In fact, I was so angry with God. I mean, after all, I was really serving the Lord here. I was taking an overload at school to graduate uh, on time. And then I was interim pastor of a church when I didn't even have time to do it. And now I've got a busted up ankle. And I mean, come on, God. I mean, don't you think I deserve something better than this? So I was pretty angry, and I was going to tell him no, you know, kind of take that, God, kind of thing. And as soon as he finished up, I said, I'd love to come. And I thought, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? But it was a defining moment. People wonder why, uh, you know, I, I just don't seem to, to quit, you know, no matter what happens. And, and I think it comes back to that defining moment of my life. And so what about you? Now, let me say this before I, I go on with the message as we look at Peter walking on the water here and Jesus walking on the water. I cannot, no matter what I preach today, no matter how clear I preach it, no matter what I do, how many scriptures I read, I cannot bring a defining moment to your life. I can't bring a defining moment to your life that's going to change the way you live your life and make a difference in your life for the rest of your life. I can't do it. I'm not capable of doing that. Only God can do that. However, we can set ourselves up for that. And there's a pattern, I believe, in the Bible, not only here, but other passages in the Bible that we read that really set us up for those defining moments of our life. And as we open up this passage, 
we find out in the book of Matthew, this letter, that this book that was written to a Jewish audience, we've seen that Jesus was there to primarily to convince a Jewish audience that they needed a savior. He had, caught, he had done so many things already, fed the 5,000 just now with two loaves and, or five loaves and two fishes. He broke them, broke them, and, and fed 5,000 people, at least 5,000. And then we find he's raised people from the dead and he's healed people of diseases. He's healed lepers. He's done, he's done all these things. And now he's about to defy physics. And as we look at this passage, one of the keys that, two keys we need to look at. One is not found in this passage, but in a parallel passage in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, chapter 6, in verse 50, around 52, it says that after Jesus had fed the 5,000, basically the disciples didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And then at the end of this story, verse 33 of this passage, it says, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, how do they get to that point? They, they went from not getting it at all to thinking to themselves, wow, you know, Jesus fed 5,000 people and here we are. We're getting into a boat. We're about to go uh, on the other side of the lake, do some more ministry. And at last, we're getting publicity that we deserve. You know, at last, Jesus is getting that recognition. You know, we're going to be, uh, you know, successful. We're going to be at the right hand of Jesus and the right and left hand of God and all that. We're going to be really looking great. And all this is going to be worth it. Now, all this may be going through their mind right now because of, of other passages that we read where this was going through their head. And so it looks successful, it looks great, and then a storm comes. I want us to look at a pattern here. And the pattern is this, a storm is bringing reality. The reality reveals our fears. Our fears cause doubts. Talked about them last week. We'll look at it again today. And our doubts call us to faith, of all things. And so let's look at it beginning in verse 22. We're coming out of the death of John the Baptist feeding the 5,000. Verse 22, he says immediately. Immediately means right then. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Why was he dismissed? Why did he do that? Well, part of the reason, we'll find out in just a moment, he wanted to pray by himself. But the other reason is there's probably about 20, 25,000 people by now that are gathered around and it was gonna get kind of dangerous for them he felt. And so he wanted them out of the way. We look in verse 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So he compelled them to get into the boat, commanded them. They obeyed that. He did it to protect them, to have prayer time. And we find out in one of the parallel gospels that they were about three and a half miles away from Jesus when he finished praying. Now, Jesus had been praying and the Bible says that when he looked up, he saw him three and a half miles away. And so right now, as they're going into the storm that we're about to describe, we can find that Jesus sent them into the storm on purpose. Wow. Why would he do such a thing? What are the storms of life really for? Now, we think about ourselves. In fact, this, the boat says, as you read on, it says in verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
Now, when it says beaten here, it means uh, a more literal term, literal term would be distressed or the boat was tortured. It's the same type of word used when it's talking about demonization. And so this is something really strong. And again, one of the other gospel just uh, describes the Sea of Galilee and what it was all about. Well, we've been to the Sea of Galilee, and um, I can tell you it's one of the prettiest places you'll ever see in the world. There's mountains, all, little small mountains all around it, and it's just like it's in a valley. Well, because of the way things go with the wind and, and such during a storm, it can almost really become like an ocean and a hurricane. It can, it can just be a terrible thing. Now, I know somebody asked, well, you know, Daryl and Amanda coming in next week, they're getting voted on. What y'all, what y'all talk about? Probably the same things we talk about with other people, other guests coming in. We talk about alligators, and we talk about mosquitoes. We talk about the weather. And so why do you do all that? Well, because we want to keep them away from talking about hurricanes. That's why. How many of you have been involved in a hurricane before? Anybody here? Yeah, I think a lot of us here, you've been flooded out of your homes. It's been a terrible thing. The weather, the storms of light, the storms that come all of a sudden reveal weaknesses around us, weaknesses in buildings, weaknesses in the terrain around us. And so when God sends us through a storm, why? Well, we talked about it, what, last week? Well, it may be to point us to Christ, maybe to mature us in Christ. The Bible has several passages about that. But one of the things I didn't mention last week that I wanted to say for this week is I believe the main reason why we go through storms of life, and that is to show us that we do not have the control over our life that we think we do. We think we have control, but this brings reality to our life. Nobody can control the weather. If, if you could, you'd have it rain right now, right? You know, nobody can control the weather. If you, if you could, you make it cooler right now. No, we can't control. In fact, the weather can, cannot even be predicted accurately. You can't control it. Now, these winds are coming through. There's a storm so bad that it sends them three and a half miles down the sea. It's not across the sea because it's, it's really not that far. It's down the sea. And so he was, they, they were drifting now, going with the storm three and a half miles down the road. Why? Why would God do this? Why would he do, do it deliberately? I mean, we want control over our own life. But this reveals to us that we cannot control what's going on. Now, most of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves, are really surprised by the storms of life. You see, somebody says, well, man, this has happened in my life, and I can't, well, have, has this ever happened before? Well, yeah, something like it. Then why were you surprised? Things have happened in my life, and I think, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised about that. I remember when we were called here uh, 26 years ago. It'll be 26 years ago, uh, two months ago, I received a phone call from the chair of the, uh, the search committee, pastoral search committee. And um, on that day, I remember it so well because it snowed in Georgia in March. Kind of unusual. Well, I remember being in the grocery store line and, and I had my bread, my peanut butter, whatever it was, a couple of little items. And these people were, were buying out the store. I mean, the place was, was filled with people buying groceries. Why? They were preparing for the great storm right? The great snowstorm in Georgia. And, um, and so, you know, this, these people, I mean, they were even, they were even going through the 10 lines, 10 items or less line with a lot of groceries. Don't you hate that? You know, just throwing that out. And so I'm there and the, and the lady behind the counter says, uh, is this all you're going to get? 
aren't you going to prepare for the storm? It's not going to snow. It's not going to snow. Predicting six inches of snow. When have you ever had six inches of snow in Georgia? Maybe one time in my life. Then I was nice about it. I said, I'll see you tomorrow. It did not snow six inches the next day. It snowed eight. And I couldn't get my car out of the driveway. Everything was closed down. I mean, I was just going to Kmart and anywhere else I could go, finding, trying to find food for my family, you know. And I got back, and Pam was already on the phone uh, talking to, to Steve Bennett, the chairman of the committee. But you see, I couldn't predict that. I, and I was surprised by it. I was surprised by the storms of life. But the storms of life reveal reality to us, and that is we're not in control. Well, our reality then reveals our fears. Look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. No control. No control. Fears develop. They thought they saw a ghost and it was believed back then there were evil spirits in the sea of Galilee. And that's why they had such bad storms. You and I know what it's like to feel fear when we're not in control. Uh, a few years ago, I was going through a city and I was, I guess, well, it was a subway. And uh, we stopped at these, you know, you stop every once in a while and let people off. And every time I stopped in this city, there was graffiti on the wall. I'm not talking about murals. I'm talking about graffiti, and some of it was kind of, you know, had curse words and things like that, lewd language. And, and I'm, you say, well, wasn't it entertaining just to kind of go through it? No, it was frightful. I'll tell you why. Because when you see that on the walls of a city, you automatically begin to think things are out of control here. People don't obey the laws. There's a lot of rebellion going on. And so your defenses go up, and you begin to look around and make sure that you're, you're, you're really staying alert. Why? Because when we are out of control, when we don't feel like we have control of a certain situation, fears develop. In fact, fear is the number one enemy of faith. So what's your fear today? You know, I may be insulting you. I don't mean to, but I may be insulting you by saying you've got a fear. You have one maybe several. In fact, we're controlled oftentimes by our fears. For example, somebody has uh, the fear of failure. You can't control that. You say, oh, yes, I can. I've read all the books and all the leadership books, all the success books. I know the formula. Yeah, yeah. What happened during the recession? You see, we can't control the economy. In fact, a lot of times you have people working for you and you can't control that situation either. We can only control certain things about our own success, and yet we're fearful of that, and so it causes us to act in a way we wouldn't normally act because now success or failure has the competition with God on the throne. But then, what about rejection? You can't control that. You can read all the books, again, how to win friends and influence people. You can be the nicest person you can possibly be, but you can't control rejection because some people are not going to like you. What about Loss, bereavement. We've had people this week to lose loved ones. You cannot control life and death. But what about the loss of money? What about the loss of power in your life? The loss of, of, of something that's not working anymore in your body, your arms or your legs. You can't control things. When we look at things very carefully, we understand that fears reveal God's competition. Whatever is a, com- a, a competitive thing in your life to, for the throne of God in your life 
is revealed by your fear. What are you afraid of? That will show you what is in control of your life, how your decisions are made, and the competition that is there for the throne of your life. Well, fears then cause our doubts. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, this is a very interesting passage, verse right here. When he says, it is I, it's the same construction that we find in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared before Moses and, and, uh, um, and Moses said, well, who, you know, if I go to Pharaoh, who do I say sent me? And the bush, the burning bush said, tell them, tell him I am sent you. And right here, this is the same construction, only in the Greek. It says, take heart, I am. He's revealing himself in a new way that he's never revealed before to the disciples. When we go through the storms of life, when we're losing control, when we fear the fears in our life, God's revealing to us in a, in a brand new way. Well, we look at these verses and it says, do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Well, people say, you know, you know, Peter just messed up again. You know, I don't see anybody else getting out of the boat, right? I don't see anybody else walking on water. For a few moments, Peter had great faith. And it, you know the story, as long as he looked to Jesus, uh, he was walking on the water. But when he began to look on his circumstances, he began to fall in the water. And you can see how Peter was, when he reached over that boat and, and put his leg into that water, and he began to walk. You have to understand the waves were coming up so high, they were coming up over his head sometimes. And they were just going like this, just rocking to and fro. The Bible says it, it was so distressful that the, the ship looked like, felt like it was going to break. And he began to look at the waves and the circumstances around him and began to be afraid. And he began to doubt the Lord. We've said before that doubt is a part of faith. Now, let me tell you the difference between doubt and unbelief. Just real quickly, maybe I didn't explain this well enough last week, and so let me try to do that. A person that is falling into unbelief might say something like this. Well, I don't believe God can do it. I really don't think I can do this by myself. I don't think God can do it. I've got all kinds of doubts, and so I'm afraid to really reach out, so I'm not going to do it. That's unbelief. On the other hand, somebody says, well, I just don't think God can do it. In fact, maybe they doubt even more than the first guy. But I just don't think I can do it. I can't do it by myself. I know that, and I don't think God can do it. But God, at your word, I'll do it. That is faith that has conquered doubt. It's all about your actions. How is it going to change your life? How is it going to work in your life? We talked about spiritual vertigo last week. Our faith cannot process what we see, hear, or experience. Well, the circumstances around Peter were true. They were true. When the disciples were afraid in the boat, all, all the circumstances were, they had been through storms before. They had been shipwrecked before. They had, had maybe their boats torn in half before, or at least, at least thrown into the sea because of the bad weather. They understood the circumstances of life, but it wasn't the whole truth. 
What they didn't account for, that three and a half miles away, Jesus, as he finished praying, saw them, and he began to come to them walking on the water. Jesus was not in the equation. The circumstances of life may be true, but it's not the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth in your life. So, what causes these doubts? Well, it may be sight, the economy, injustice, your bank account. My goodness, you can look in your bank account and, and doubt whether you're going to have the money to pay the bills, sounds, voices. People come to you and say, well, you know, God just didn't do it for me. He's not going to do it for you. And just really negative thinking. I've heard people say before, well, you know, that guy used to be my friend or that lady used to be my friend, but I can't hang around, around them anymore. They're just so negative. I just, I can't take that in my life. And they can't. They really can't. So there's sounds. There's feelings. I just don't feel you know, I, I, just, I just don't have the emotion behind doing what God, I know God wants me to do. I don't have that courage to do it. Experiences. Well, you know, I've experienced unanswered prayer before. Haven't you? We've talked about that before. What about the experiences around us of God maybe not coming through for others as well? And what about sin in our life? Charles Stanley has said, sin is a spiritual leak in our faith. When we're not right with God, we just can't seem to believe. Doubts fill our mind, not only about what God can do, but doubts fill our mind on what we can do and what we are about. Now, Jesus, as I said, has demonstrated power over nature, disease, death. He fed the 5,000. And now he's, he's, he's really going against physics. He's walking on water. Will the disciples believe him? Well, they're standing at the crossroads of defining moment. I remember A.W. Tozer in his book, Pursuit of God, one of the great little books ever been written, in my opinion. And he talks about how Abraham in the Old Testament was going to sacrifice Isaac. Now, if you don't know the Bible, I apologize for the story. You have to go back and read it because God did provide a sacrifice and he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But he had a choice. He believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God was going to raise him from the dead. We find that out later in the Bible. But he had, he had a crossroads, Tozer said, a crossroads of two choices. One, to obey God. One, not to obey God. And he said this. He says, we always come to the crossroads. And when we come, there's two choices, only two, the right one and the wrong one. And the one we choose really defines our future, and our life, and who we become. Well, they were standing at the crossroads. And are they going to doubt and fall into unbelief, as Herod did in our last, last week's story? Or are they going to go through and have Jesus, in a sense, reintroduce himself and receive the revelation that God wants him to have? Well, lastly this morning, our doubts call us to faith. Are you going to believe or not? Look in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. A new revelation and a new receiving. They received what God had for them. So, what are the three things that we can do? You know, there's no way, again, I can preach, and all of a sudden you have this defining moment in your life. I'm not going to have much to do with it except for I'm just going to be the messenger. It's got to happen between you and God. 
a, a new storm, a new revelation in that storm, a wrestling over doubt in that storm, and finally, the crossroads of a decision in your life of what you're going to do. And so what do you do? Well, three things. Let me give you three things in this passage. Number one, you let go of the boat. In order for Peter to have this defining moment in his life, he had to get out on the waves and walk on the water. He had to, to, to participate. Now, I know that Peter had seen a lot of miracles. And Peter had participated in the sense that maybe he was kind of praying as all these things were going on. But Peter wanted to be involved in it. You see, he wanted, he wanted something more. Something more than be a participant. Something more in his life by just sitting back and seeing Jesus do things. He wanted to be a part of it. So he got out on the water and he let go of the boat. What, what, is, what is competing with God with you on the throne of your life? Is it family? You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. I, I think living for your family is a, a good thing. It was living for, Bible says live for others and that's others. Well, you're right, but it's not totally right. You see, I feel like my, my kids are a part of me. They're 50% me, and then they're 50% the better half, okay? My grandkids are 25% me, 75% the other three. They're really, they're part of me. And so I'm living for others, living for my kids. That's, that's my first responsibility, especially when they're young, growing up. But really to truly live for others is to live for others that do not benefit me. And so family can become an idol. Finances, failure, success, rejection, whatever it is that's competing on the throne, let it go. You just take your hands off of it and latch on to God, which secondly is look to Jesus. The first thing you need to do to let go of your boat, by the way, is to read the Bible. Let me just throw that out. You gotta read the Bible. Because without it, you're not gonna have any ammunition. You're not gonna have any revelation from God on a consistent basis to go to those defining moments. So if you're not into the word, if you're not reading the Bible for all it's worth, then chances are you're gonna struggle to have those defining moments in your life. But then you look to Jesus, so what do you do there? You pray. That's what that's all about. You not only read the Bible, but you're praying. Instead of looking at the circumstances of life, you're taking those circumstances of life and you're laying them on the altar for God and just say, God, you know, I'm, I'm just focusing on you. I know that all these things are true and they're giving me all kinds of stress and anxiety, but I know it's not the whole truth. So I'm looking to you, looking to Jesus Christ. One of the things, and I'll, I'll look at the letter C in our outline, receive the truth. Look in verse 32. Truly you are the Son of God. They were having a defining moment in their life. A defining moment is a revelation of a truth you never realized before. They never realized all. When he said, it is I, it is I am. Now they're saying, wow, he's claiming to be God. We've seen what has happened. Now it dawns on us that truly this was the Son of God a divine revelation in their life. Well, you get there receiving the truth. You know, again, I can't preach it there. But what you can do, you can make your heart ready. There is no accident this is coming right after. This story is coming soon after the parable of the soils. Some of the seed of God, the word of God falls on rocky soil. Some of it, however, that fourth one was fruitful soil, soft. So how do you get your heart soft? And how do you harden your heart? 
It's really simple. You soften your heart by saying yes to God. You harden it by saying no. Simple as that. You look at the commands here in the Bible. Jesus said, go. Immediately, I want you to go, get into the boat and go. They immediately went. Take courage, they did. Come, he said to Peter, he did. Take my hand, Peter, he did. Everything along the way, they were in obedience to God, and God softened their heart that was pliable. And they were ready. They were able to see it. Now, many of you can take your salvation experience as an example of this. How many times I've shared Christ with someone, and they've said, yes, I want to receive Jesus. And then when they say amen, they look up, and I'm talking to them, and they'll interrupt me. I've had them to interrupt me before and say, wow, I really see it. I never saw it before, but I see it now. That's the kind of thing we're thinking, we're, we're talking about in your own Christian experience. That come to Jesus moment where you see a new revelation. You know him like you've never known him before. And it causes you to love him like you've never loved him before. And it's a divine moment in your life. A defining moment. We look at Lacey's testimony just a few moments ago. And she said the first thing she realized was how holy God was. I mean, it's like it came to her immediately. The holiness of God. And then she said, secondly, remember, she said, I realized how unholy I was. It's like Peter, another defining moment in his life. See, he had more than one. When he was standing, uh, he's coming in from the boats, and you can just imagine how it was. I mean, he, he felt as the leader of this little band of fishermen that he was responsible, not only for his family, everybody's family. They'd come in that night, and they hadn't caught anything all day. Now, that would be an unusual day. Nothing. They caught nothing. And Jesus said, as he looked at Jesus, oh, Jesus, I mean, I can imagine. Peter was an angry guy. He had anger issues. And I'm sure he was angry, and he was mad. And, um, and Jesus just looked at him and said uh, from the shore, he said, throw your net on that side of the boat. He was thinking, hey, look, I've got such respect for Jesus. I'll do whatever he says. But, you know, you know I'm the fisherman here, not him. But he throws the net over, and the Bible says so many, so many immediately, so many fish were in the net, they could not even bring it up on the boat. Then Peter turns to Jesus with a big grin on his face, I'm sure, and ready to celebrate, and he looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he drops to his knees, and he says, it's not my fault, Jesus, it's the disciples' fault. Oh, no, he didn't say that. It's not my fault, Jesus, it's my kids'. You know, they're driving me crazy. It's not my fault. You're the one that made me this way. I mean, I'm just, I'm just dumb. No, he dropped to his knees and he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For the first time, he saw who Jesus was. And then he saw himself for the first time who he really was, and what he was. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.